Hey cousin, you wanna go bowling? <laughs> Normally I like to talk about the behind the scenes material, but honestly, the behind the scenes here doesn't really matter except for one big key point. They were going for a completely different tact when it came to the HD-verse over the 3D-verse. This is one of the several reasons why they decided to go ahead and divvy it up into a separate thing. They keep saying the word high definition, and they wanted that to not just be about graphics, but about the storytelling. I'll go ahead and tell you the word that I think fits better, consequence. One of the big things is they wanted to address and showcase the idea of what it's like to be a GTA protagonist, but have there be realistic consequences for those actions. Now, that works in many ways, and I think... Well, I haven't played through GTA V again yet with analysis mode on you. I haven't finished the stream of that one yet. So I'm not sure if this one is better or worse than GTA V in terms of writing. But if you ask me right now, I'd say this is easily the best written GTA game up to this point. This is incredibly tightly written. There's actually only a few major flaws, which I'll cover in just a moment. But I want to talk about the gameplay first, because the driving is something that you'll have to come up with your own opinion on. I know, that's kind of copping out, but in my experience and observation, some people prefer the driving, some people don't, some people like it, and some people don't. It's different. I have a hard time calling the GTA 4 driving worse, but different is a much easier word to ascribe to it. It's, it's hard to get a handle on, and once you get a little more used to it, sure. But there's a reason it feels like slaloming, slaloming around on land, except you're actually on a boat. You just... Hang on. Hang on, let me go over here. Hang on. Hang on. Hang on, we're almost there. That's what driving feels like in this game. Now, that can work. The weight to it can work and can make it fun. And it's especially fun when you get up to speed, because if you make any mistake, you're screwed. So it feels kind of nice to actually pull it off. But uh, I will say one thing that definitively irritates me about this game is that if you come into just about any impact, you go flying through that windshield, which is just irritating. And I mean, you can do that at like 20 miles an hour. It does not take that much speed to get flung through that window. So, that's fun. The cop mechanics were changed. That's also fun. So the way it works now is you get what... As soon as you're spotted, a circle appears. The size of the circle depends on the level of wanted. At max level, it's absolutely gargantuan, covering like an entire island. And... The, high, the, the higher it is, the more stuff spawns, just like in the original, but also the more aggressive they will be about following you. If you have one star, cops will have a very low-level AI when trying to track you down. It's really easy to get away. Even as high as, or low as three star, however, they will actively try to pursue you and drive substantially better. This system kind of sucks and kind of doesn't. Basically, in my opinion, again, pure opinion here, I think the cop system kind of sucks in GTA 4 because they're more irritating than anything else. They aren't really dangerous, and they're not really damaging. It's hard for them to actually capture you, and they aren't going to do a lot of damage to you when they do. But it's hard to get away from them, and you can't do most things, interactions, while you have a wanted level. And it's really easy to get a wanted level. So, kind of a no thank you when it comes to that. Now, the guns, I actually like the gunplay, and this is going to tie into a thing here, because the guns themselves are, are mostly the same with a few little addendums. They added the cover system, which I hate. I don't hate cover in general, but I've never, I, I sat down thinking about this during the stream, I can't think of any game that has cover-based shooting that I think the cover-based shooting is a plus, like it's, it adds to the enjoyment of the gameplay. My opinion. Never played Gears of War, for the record. 
you know, no Xbox. But <clears throat> this game is definitely a negative for the cover because mechanics literally work differently while you're in cover. It's hard to explain if you haven't actually sat down and played it. But having just played it, like, your aiming works differently, where your gun actually shoots from and how it interacts with the physics works differently, reloading works differently, you can't even zoom in on, for example, the sniper rifle. It's just, in general, what I would do is I would immediately pop out of cover and then start shooting, which would work quite well, especially when I get the MP5, which is basically a headshot machine. That worked out quite well. It does mean you take a few more hits, but you shrug. It's, it's, it's better than sitting back there being frustrated the entire time. I feel like the game also is supposed to lean on you using grenades a lot more, because the enemies will stick behind cover just as much as they expect you to. So... But that leads me to the mission structure. How many of you have played GTA 4 recently? <laughs> I think the biggest flaw of this game, bar none, is the fact that its missions suck. There are a few standouts, I'd say probably four total, in GTA 4 Vanilla, to be more clear. Uh, the mission structure got a lot better in Lost in the Damned and way better in Ballad of Gay Tony. But, and this, this rumination is covering all three, it's worth noting. But in Vanilla GTA 4, you go to a spot and you kill someone, or you go to a spot and fight your way through what I mentally think of as a stronghold. You know, you, you go there, there's enemies all placed through in a relatively defensible location. Your objective is to slowly move through the stronghold, or out, sometimes you're escaping, like the museum, for example, and you move your way through the stronghold and you shoot as you go. Now you're probably thinking, Lore, what's wrong with that? You know, funnily enough, nothing really. This is why this game reminds me of Dragon Age 2. Hear me out. Dragon Age 2 Syndrome is something I've slowly started entering into my lingo, because, um, or my lexicon, because what it describes is a game with relatively shallow but fun gameplay that overstays its welcome. I enjoy the combat of Dragon Age 2. The problem is that there's no real depth to it, and, in combination with that, there's way too much of it. So it's just the same thing over and 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 over, and it stops being fun somewhere around here. And that's GTA 4's combat, especially in Vanilla, in a nutshell, in my opinion. After a certain point, the missions just become a slog. And it's just, alright. And if you want to do it properly, because the way this game works, because enemies will shred you if you're not careful, though that usually meant for me, and anyone watching the stream can tell this, is slowly advancing with the gun out, aiming down the sights, slowly making my way through each stronghold, and then headshotting my way through, inch by inch, until I was done. And that is fun! The first ten times, maybe twenty, after a while, it gets old. And that's my point. This also compounds itself because GTA 4 Vanilla is way too long, both from a gameplay and from a story design perspective. This is something, before I move on to my next point, this is something I feel that both expansions do much better. I've said this so many times, and this is just becoming such a regular, repeating, common thread as we discuss game design and game marketing. Length of game does not equal quality of game. I know that sounds like duh, but it also makes perfect sense why so many people want longer games. However, this then leads to a problem where a lot of games pad their games out just to make them longer. This is a, a problem that's going back, you know, 20, 30 years at this point. This is not a new issue. It's just the more I've been, you know, analyzing and designing and playing these games, the more it's like, God, I forgot how long and sloggy this is. Both expansions fix that problem neatly. Now, both expansions are 8 to 10-ish hours. 
But that's eight to ten-ish hours of solid, compact, good gameplay. That's also not counting doing the completely optional procedural stuff like the drug wars or the gang wars or anything like that. But that's good gameplay and good story in a ten-hour chunk. And more importantly, it's well-paced. The pace of events going throughout each of those games, the, the two expansions, is far more smooth, and thus there's no point at which I'm thinking, Ugh, another one? Instead, I was just having fun the entire time. They probably could have been longer than 10 hours, but my point is GTA 4 could definitely have been shorter than 40. <sighs> like I said, I, I could talk about other things, like Ballad of Gay Tony, you know, really adds with the, the zany factor and, and kind of fleshes things out with that. I'll talk about, about that in a minute, actually. You have the helicopter missions. But, like I said, the very structure of the missions changes. One of the very first missions in Ballad of Gay Tony is you trying to hit golf balls to torture a guy for a, for a guy who works for the Ancelotti's. Or Ancelotti's, excuse me. One of the first missions for the, the Lost and the Damned involves uh, going and, and you know, trying to defeat a giant group of people with a bunch of your own guys at your back and using the train to your advantage and blah, blah, blah. You know, it, the mission structure was different. And, of course... Uh, the, the the Lost and the Damned added your, your compatriots, who are of variable quality in terms of how useful they are. But one thing they are definitively useful on is drawing fire away from you, which if nothing else means you suddenly don't have 30 people all shooting at you, just five. If nothing else, that was an improvement. And the fact that you can level them up was a nice feature as well by calling them into missions, which I did pretty regularly because, duh. I should also mention that, from what I understand, that was also a prototype for what would happen in the heist uh, crew member mechanic over in GTA V. But we're not there yet, and I already made it a rule not to talk about GTA V until we're there, so let's not violate my rule any more than I already have. Let me ask you a question instead. How many of you played GTA IV? Let's, let's go back to vanilla for a second. How many of you remember the mission where you as Nico go and save your, your cousin, Roman? Remember that? It's a good mission. It's, it's a stronghold mission. One of the harder ones, I'd say probably the fourth or so hardest one in the game. And you just go through there, uh, wrecking and destroying your way through, trying to rescue your cousin, who's been kidnapped by uh, Johnny and Malk, actually, on behalf of Dimitri, because of Ashley, because... <laughs> the games are very nicely con connected to each other. How many of you remember that mission, okay? How many of you remember anything of substance after that point? Now, there's no right answer here. I'm just honestly curious, and I'd love to hear your thoughts in the comments, because by memory, I have really vague memories prior to this recent replay after that point. In fact, I know for total certainty that several times I replayed this game, I put the game down after that mission. The reason why is that's that filler padding problem, because it affects the story as well. After that, we really get into the McReary's. We really get into the deals with the uh, Pegarinos and their feud with the Ancelotti's. And the, all the Ray missions and the Diamond missions and the, the Heroin missions and all that kind of happens afterwards. And it just kind of drags. And after a while, it just sort of blurs together. Again, I feel like it was padded out to be a longer game. What's horrible is by the end of GTA 4, it comes back smoothly. Because immediately after that, we have the Darko mission and then the finale mission between... Uh, what do they call it? Dealer Revenge, I believe is what they call it. Although I disagree with that, but let's get to that later. Just interesting to think about. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's talk about a few specific things. Let's talk about Vlad. Vlad is hysterical. I know this is a weird place to start, but he's the first antagonist we really encounter. Vlad is one of the major themes of the game in a nutshell. That would be the theme of, for lack of a better way to call it, escalation. Escalation is very simple. 
you can do nothing wrong. However, you can still be provoked into a situation in which you are then attacked by someone bigger than you. And if you succeed in, in defeating that person who's bigger than you, all you do is get the attention of someone bigger than them. This is the path that Nico and Roman go through throughout most of the entire course of the game. This also affects Johnny and, to a lesser extent, Tony and Luis over on their expansions. Because their choices were twofold. They could allow Vlad to keep manipulating and using Roman, and literally using Mallory, and just kind of bend over and take it with a smile, or they could try to fight back. Now, I say that that way because it seems so obvious, right? But that's the point and the theme. They did nothing wrong, and they were pushed into a corner, and they finally decided to push back. And what happened is everything got worse from that point onwards, because that got the attention of Faustin, and that got the attention of Dimitri, and that got them involved with Elisabetta, which got them involved with the McCreary's, which got them involved with the Pegorinos. It just escalated. The only reason everything worked out in any substance for Nico is because of the fact that he finally got the attention of two actual people in legitimate power who had a brain and therefore were willing to actually work with him rather than try to use or abuse him. That would be Mr. Uh, uh, Gravelli and the United Liberty Paper Contact, a.k.a. Bernard. If it wasn't for that, they probably would have had a bad end. So Vlad is the perfect perspective to that because... It's made very clear that Nico is a deadly and dangerous person. Very, I, I absolutely adore the characterization of this game. The writing, the motion capture, and the voice acting is just phenomenal and spot on. It's one of the reasons why I, I tout this game as one of the best written of the GTA games, because the story axis is so well presented. Nico first meets Vlad, or Vlad, or however you say his stupid name. Nobody cares about him. He's some fat moron. But... Vlad is just, he, he's busy pushing Roman around, like he's a big man on campus, and yet he's wigged out by Nico, who isn't saying anything. Nico's just there. The automatic implication is that Vlad can tell when a bigger fish has entered the pond, and it unnerves him. And the way he deals with that is he tries to push him under his thumb. Oh, you work for me now because you're a stupid cousin. And that was very stupid of him. Another recurring theme, probably one of the biggest themes of this game, there's actually four we'll be covering overall, is short-term gain, long-term loss. One of the most common mentalities people in, in all three of these games has is, oh, I can get this now without thinking of what's going to happen then. You know, your typical corporate America perspective, to put it into simplistic terms. Dimitri is the single biggest practitioner of this idea. Dimitri is the kind of guy who will kill... A mafia don, a low-scale mafia don, but still, just so he has a slightly larger slice of the pie right now, completely regardless of what this means later on. He does this constantly. I want you to really think for a moment about the value of someone like Nico Bellic. That man, granted, he doesn't really want to be a criminal, but anyone can see his value. Mr. Gravelli and the United Liberty Paper Contact both saw his value and both tried to properly utilize him for high-scale, high-tier stuff and stay on his good side, you know, maintain him as, a, as an actual contact rather than just sort of abusing and misusing him and then betraying him. You'll notice everyone who does that tends to end up dead. Look at you, Jimmy. <laughs> so Phil is another person, actually, who actually has a brain on this one. Now I'm thinking, so Phil, United Liberty Paper Contact, and Mr. Gravelli. The three people actually have a frickin' brain in this game. They, um, I mean, there's people in some of the expansions that have a brain, too. Johnny actually has a decent head on his shoulders. Luis has a decent head on his shoulders. 
Um, and so does Yusuf, actually, although that's, that's another topic. That mentality is so prevalent throughout the entirety of the course of the game. And you could summarize it by the word greed, but I think it's more important to, to, to narrow down the specific type of greed we're talking about. Because it's short-sighted greed. It's now. In other words, instant gratification. This is why I think this is a deliberate intent on behalf of the writing staff. Because this game is, is designed to be a very dark, horrific, you know, serious work, which is intended to be, you know, consequences, high definition, etc. And one of the biggest things it parodies consistently is the idea of the American dream. And what, one of the most common things that's associated with the American dream is instant gratification. The American dream is actually the second theme. That one's more interesting to talk about. Because... This game brilliantly and beautifully subverts and then reconstructs the American dream. On the one hand, this, this is my favorite thing to talk about. Please forgive me for gushing here for a second. My, my favorite part of this game is that you get off the dock and, you, you know, you, the Romans talked up all his exploits. And then he shows up and he's like, ah, and he's got a cab, his own cab. And he takes him to this dingy apartment with a cockroach and, you know, food hanging out and, and a fold-out sofa bed. And he goes and immediately tries to get him to work for the, for the dinky little cab, which has one little tiny office. And, and the whole thing is presented as if, look how pathetic he is. The reconstruction comes from the fact that that actually is the American dream. Hear me out for a second. Roman shows up on the docks with nothing and no one. And by the time Nico shows up, Roman has a successful cab business in New York, excuse me, Liberty City. Think about that. Think about how much work and effort and struggle that he had to put into that. He was doing this while having a gambling problem, by the way, which is probably his biggest flaw. If, if Roman didn't have his gambling problem, he'd probably be doing substantially better. He manages in spite of all of this. That is the reconstruction of the American dream. That through hard work, persistence, and a bit of luck, he did make it. He did marry the woman of his dreams. He did found a successful business twice, by the way. Because after it burned down, he still managed to bounce back from that. And he managed to turn it into something that actually returned a significant product, a profit, excuse me, completely legitimately, while still having a gambling problem. I love that point. I love how the game subverts and then reconstructs that point. It says it right up to your face. Roman goes off on Nico. Nico's like, ah, you're terrible. And Roman says, do you have any idea what I've been through? I gave you a place to stay. I gave you a car. I gave you jobs. I had nothing. He's right. I mean, obviously, we show up and we get missions and stuff, but that requires having the support network. And, again, this is about consequence, more of a realistic, believable perspective rather than just a video game based on a series of, of TV shows and movies. No offense to the 3D games, but they weren't really grounded. But here we see what that support structure costs, and it is emphasized substantially the value of said support structure. There's something San Andreas started. CJ had his support network, and it was pretty much the reason he was successful. They dragged him up from mediocrity into being the successful person he was. Here, we have a similar thing. Roman's there for him. Jacob's there for him. Brucey's there for him. Bernie is there for him later on. These people help support and uplift Nico, and, well, all of them have something like that. Johnny has Malk, ironically, had Jim. He has Terry, he has Clay. 
Luis has Tony, or to be slightly more accurate, Tony has Luis. Let's just be clear about that one. But he also has the support of Yusuf, which is invaluable in its own right. These, the value of support and how it's presented and the reconstruction of the American dream, such as it is, is, is probably my favorite part of the story. So forgive me for gushing so much about this here. Um, I, I could go on some specific notes. Um, do you think Faustin, Mikhail Faustin, was actually just a rage, roided up person, or did he actually have a brain? Upon reconstruction going through it, I think he was a lot smarter than he was given credence for. There's a lot of Babylon 5 effect going on. The first time through, he seems like a raging idiot. The second time through, you could see he actually understands the value of things better than Dimitri does. Everything Dimitri does is very short-sighted, even before he betrays us, which is another short-sighted thing he does. Um... Little Jacob, he's awesome, of course. I never had any trouble understanding Little Jacob, but that's actually because I've known people like that who talk like that in real life. Now, Badman, <laughs> I have trouble with him. I need the subtitles for him. I, I need some effort on that one. Brucey, I don't really know much about, but Brucey's kind of harmless in his own way. You'll notice Nico has many opportunities to completely smack him down and hurt him, similar to how Luis eventually does to Mori. And he doesn't, because Nico knows he's harmless. The way Nico, the trained hitman soldier who survived the Yugoslavian wars of the 90s, that the way he reacts to people is so telling because he is very good at immediately identifying the level of threat there. Of course he is. That's just how he is. I doubt he even does it cognitively. Like I doubt he's conscious of it at this point. He just does that. And the way he reacts to people is so telling. God, I absolutely love this game. Sorry. I love the story of this game. The gameplay... Well, let's just say I never want to play this game again. If they ever do a proper remake or a proper remaster polishing this game, but that'd be awesome. But but then we have, like, to continue going into this idea, Dwayne. I don't have much to say about Dwayne. He's cool. He's a bro. Dwayne is a perfect perspective on Nico. You'll notice Nico, in several cases, willingly goes out of his way to help Dwayne without prompting. And the two connect very uh, clearly. Because another of the themes, I think we're up to five at this point, is the past and how you should deal with that. Because it's not that you should always let go of the past, and it's not like you should always cling to it. You need to know when to do what to do. When to fold them, and when to when to not, right? When to hold them, when to fold them. Dwayne is stuck in the past, and it's portrayed as a bad thing. And he tries to move on from that. Bernie and Nico are stuck in the past, and that is also portrayed as a bad thing. Mostly because they are so stuck in it that they're having trouble. Johnny is this way, too. And frankly, so is Tony. All three of the main characters, because Luis is not the main character of Ballad of Gay Tony. He's cool, but he's not the main character. He's, just the protect he's the playable character. All three main characters are stuck in the past in one way or another. And all three of them have to deal with that in their own ways. Nico gets a choice because you, the player, get to choose. I'll talk about that in a bit. Johnny... Johnny gets crushed. Johnny gets destroyed. His worldview is so... I talked about this on stream. His worldview is... It's not just, this is how I believe. He presents it as, this is how it is. Ideas of brotherhood and honor. The fact that he believed in those concepts and his own particular chivalric code was something he believed was a fact of reality, not just something he did, right? Let me use a quick parallel in case I'm not getting my point across. If I make a promise, I keep it. I've broken one promise in my entire life. As of this exact moment in time, I have four ongoing promises, uh, two of which have an end date. 
And I know all four of them, and I keep track of that, because to me, that's kind of a sacred thing. You don't break a promise, right? However, I don't expect anyone else to be like that, and I expect other people to break their promises all willy-nilly, especially since I've seen people do that. That is not how Johnny is. Johnny thinks everyone should keep their promises just like he does, because that's how it should be, to, to continue the metaphor. Thus, he goes through all the events of the Lost and the Damned, and by the end, not only Ashley, but most importantly Billy, demonstrably shows that he was wrong. His worldview is smashed, just cracked in half. And as a consequence, Johnny's a broken person, and he doesn't really have anything really left over afterwards. And spoilers for GTA V, we see that that really does break him, and he never recovers from this. So Johnny was stuck in the past and never actually healed from that, never actually moved forward from that. Tony, sadly, he doesn't really do all that much better either. He is completely stuck in the 70s in more ways than one, and he is still trying to portray it as if that's the way things should be. And he consistently and constantly gets burned because he keeps treating the scenarios and people around him as if it's the way things used to be. And again, GTA Online shows Tony's not actually doing all that well. Nico. Nico can get over it or not, depending on what you do. And there are two really big choices that change that. One is Darko, and one is the ending. This, the confrontation with Darko is, is one of my favorite scenes in the entire game. It's my second favorite scene in the entire game. It is poetry. Brilliantly acted, brilliantly visually realized. Darko looks so much like Nico, and you see so much of what could have happened there. Not that long before this, we meet Bernie. Now, I'm deliberately calling him Bernie because that's his name of choice, so respect. But I'm referring to Flavian, right? Florian, excuse me, Florian, my bad. The guy who, the, the, the third of the three people who survived. When we meet him, his initial cutscene is an amazing amount of exposition in a short and efficient period of time. He thinks Nico, he sees Nico's like, oh my god, did you do it? No, you think I did it. Well, screw you. And he's got this high, little voice, kind of like this, and he's doing this thing with his arms. And periodically, I think it's a total of three times, but two significant ones I remember. Once when he mentions Darko, and once when he says, how is Darko? I hope he's dead. He loses that tone, and his body language changes completely. And we see Bernie is dealing with the past, too. Now, here's the thing. Now, this is really cool. Some people in chat were saying, oh, Bernie's moved on, but he hasn't. The cutscene shows very clearly Bernie is just as affected by the past as Nico and Darko. All three of the main characters are haunted by that past. All three of them deal with it in different ways. Nico becomes a cold-hardened killer, smuggling people, and then getting into the point of just becoming a hired hitman. Bernie reinvents himself. You know, allows himself to express who he really is, and you know, goes open and gets together with the mayor. The mayor probably doesn't love him. Let's just be honest. And you know, he goes, he's got his whole thing. Darko descends into droghood. It just becomes a drug-addled mess. This is how all three of them deal with it. But none of them have actually dealt with it. None of them have successfully finished that until the events of the game. Now, if you kill Darko, Vengeance feels empty, I believe is the direct quote that, that uh, Nico says. He says, it didn't fulfill anything, it didn't satisfy anything. And the game makes it clear, as everyone talks around it, that that is not a cool choice. And some people, I'm getting heavily into opinion here, by the way, so forgive me. Please feel free to disagree in the comments below. Some people seem to think that's all about forgiving Darko. In my opinion, that has nothing to do with it. 
This has nothing to do with Darko, as weird and horrible as that sounds. Killing Darko doesn't satisfy anything because it doesn't actually close the door. There's an open door in, 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 in Nico's mind. That past, that incident has been haunting him ever since, just like it's haunting Bernie and just like it's haunting Darko. And Nico's been dealing with that for, for 10, 13, 15, I forget exactly how many years. This entire time he's been trying and struggling, trying to deal and, and, and failing at it. This door has just been banging wide open, freaking frustrating him constantly. And as he's trying to process this, he finally, finally, finally is facing the thing that has been haunting him for so long, and it's just a degenerate, worthless mess. Darko asks, you know, he said, how much? A thousand dollars. You killed all our men for a thousand dollars? How much do you charge for killing people? The first time we ever kill someone in this game, we charge them five hundred dollars for it. Nico sees just how much and how far Darko has gone, and how much he himself could go. If he kills him, there's no closure there, because all he's doing is staying stuck in the past. He's leaving the door open. Walking away is not forgiving that degenerate mess of a man. Walking away is saying that this is done, that this is a part of himself that has ended and that he has now moved on from. True closure, the ability to walk away, is something that is truly hard to do and something that Nico can earn depending on player choice. It's what I choose, and it is for that reason I choose it. And you can tell Nico struggles with it, and yet he feels so much lighter afterwards. His tone, his demeanor, his body language. Even though Roman is upset about it, or, sorry, I'm getting off topic. Roman is, Roman is proud of him for it. The United Liberty Paper Contact is proud of him for it. Bernie is proud of him for it. They, this is something that they all understand could not have been easy. And this leads me neatly into deal or revenge, or as it's more properly called, um, greed or insurance. Here's the thing. At first glance, revenge is portrayed as the evil option, like killing Darko. You know, ah, <laughs> And greed is portrayed, excuse me, excuse me, deal, greed, let's call it what it is, is portrayed as the good option. Okay, I'm going to let go of the past, I'm going to... The thing is, that's not true, and I think this is deliberately done in immediate... You're supposed to do the Darko mission, then immediately get the choice. And I think that's done very deliberately to kind of throw the player off balance and kind of test if they're really thinking about this. Because what has been that other big theme I talked about, right? Short-term game for long-term loss. Making that deal is a short-term gain. They get tons of money right now. But they're screwing over people. They're making more enemies. They're staying in the game. There are a lot of problems with that, a lot of unconnected things. And they're doing so by trusting Dimitri, who is the king of short-term gain and stupidity and greed, and who actually screws them over if they make that choice. Roman is the only one really pushing for that idea. Roman and Jimmy. But who gives a name about Jimmy? Revenge a.k.a. insurance, is squaring away. At that point in the game, Nico and Groman don't actually have that many people left who hate them and want them killed. Dimitri is the big one. Dimitri and Jimmy are the only two. Removing Dimitri from the board and ejecting him is the long-term move. They don't make as much money now, but they make something else, safety and security, long-term. Now, you could argue that, and you'd be valid to do so. But that's how it's generally presented within the course of the game. And the only person who's really in favor of the deal, Roman, he's just like, oh, well, if you don't go that way. 
With Dimitri dead, the door is closed, and the past is now concluded, and they can move on. The only exception to this is Jimmy, who is, of course, a moron. Now, Jimmy, I, I, one of the other big themes in this is just how small-scale we are. I'm going to talk about this only briefly. I don't want to derail too much. We are on the bottom of the rung in this whole game. We see a grand total of two big fish, maybe three, throughout the course of all three of these games. And everyone else is, is people who are under people who are under people. It's very ground level. It's a good thing. It helps with the perspective. It helps with the believability. But consider the chain of events that go from Vlad to Mikhail, who themselves are on their way out to Elisabetta, which goes up to the McReary's, which is under Ray, who himself is a pathetic member of the Pegarinos, who themselves are so pathetic, they're not even considered actual mafia. They are trying to snip at the heels of the people who are at the bottom rung of the five families, and so forth and so on. I mention this because this bottom rung, low-tier perspective is very important when it comes to understanding the why Nico is such a mover and a shaker. I've had a theory for a while, forgive me, that someone, either the, you know, the FIB or the IAA or the cops, or maybe one of the mafia families, the actual high-tier mafia families, introduced the diamonds and the heroin into the city just to, to shred the lower tiers. Think about this. This is something that came up constantly on stream. That's $2 million worth of diamonds. That's a lot of money, right? No, no, that's nothing. Later on, we get a mission for the United Liberty Paper Contact to destroy more than $2 million worth of coke because that's what the high tiers are doing. Now, you could argue this one way or the other, but my point is $2 million is not that much money, especially when it comes to organized crime. And yet all the people at the bottom shred themselves and, and just about everyone gets killed involved in the process, scrabbling to get these $2 million worth of diamonds. Nobody profits from it, except for, you know, the, the I can't remember his name, the homeless guy. That's it, right? <laughs> it's all, it, it's wonderful scale. The small scale thing is really wonderful. It really is, and I love that perspective. Um, do you think, so let, let's talk about the consequences. So you can get uh, Kate killed, who was an innocent civilian, or you can get Roman killed, who was an innocent civilian. So that's a wonderful choice. Let me just go ahead and say really quick, in case I've never said this before, Roman's my favorite GTA character. Ever. Uh, up to five. Not counting five, because I haven't replayed that. But uh, up till this point, I love Roman. He's amazing. He is human. He's fleshed out. He's awesome and flawed and engaging. And just, I, I love Roman. He's an amazing character. No choice, right? But the thing is, it is still a horrible choice the game forces on you. And frankly, I think that actually kind of sucks. I'm fine with hard choices, but after replaying them with analysis mode, I feel like the game doesn't really earn the endings the way it should. It just kind of thrusts them on you so that tragedy happens. And the final missions aren't even all that different from each other in terms of construction, which itself is it's kind of lackluster, but anyways. But it's relevant because do you... Th I have a question for you. Do you think that Nico is actually an evil person? And I'd love to hear your thoughts. I've heard so many differing thoughts on this matter. Because it could be argued that Niku never tries to leave the criminal life. And he does stuff for money, but he stays at the bottom. He has no drive. This is an important part of Nico's character. If he was a typical GTA protagonist, he'd be on top of the heap by the end of the game. But he doesn't care. This is truly critical to understanding Nico Bellic's character. He cares about his family, which at the moment is basically Roman, and 
you know that that's that that group in in group grows and encompasses more people by the end of the game but he cares about his family he cares about the big thing closing that door what he thinks is getting revenge on darko and he cares about existing long enough to get to that point that's it so he has no drive or ambition to go past that. He is too broken of a human being to even think about trying to become some kind of big kingpin, which he absolutely could. Instead, by all accounts, according to what we know from this and from uh, from GTA V, it's very likely he is, that, that the revenge ending is canon. Kate does end up dying, and Roman lives, and, he, and Nico ends up working with the cab company and, and working long-term on that side of things. He settles down. He has a normal life. Because that's what he wanted. He wanted what he never had in the last 20 years of living in hell and worse. Things that I can't even begin to comprehend. I've been through some really, really messed up stuff in my life. And I still cannot be on the level of what Nico's been through. So the idea of him just having a normal life is all he really cares about. But he never really tries throughout the course of the game to move out of that. And depending on player choice, he may never actually reach that point. So again, I ask you, is he an evil person? Just interesting to think about. I want to talk about a couple other things more related to the expansions. Um, I talked about the American Dream. I talked about the escalation problem. I talked about, uh, you know, Nico. One of the things I find fascinating is uh, Nico himself is also in direct contrast to the boss from the Saints Row series. Now, the boss doesn't really become a character until Saints Row 2. However, the boss is someone driven and violent and brutal and willing to go beyond the rules, but the boss is immensely ambitious. And that's, that's an interesting contrast, especially since by the time Saints Row 2 had come out, these series started actually dueling each other. This is also interesting because Johnny and Luis both aren't really all that ambitious either. Luis is probably the most ambitious of the three, but that makes sense because he's high. I don't mean he's on drugs. I mean... Nico is middle, Johnny is low, Luis is high. We see all three perspectives of the criminal life and uh, all three uh, tiers of storytelling throughout the course of these three games. Uh, Nico kind of threads the middle. He interacts with some lows, he interacts with some highs, he's just kind of here, right? Johnny is at the bottom of the rung. He is a used sex toy, and I'm sorry, I know that's vulgar sounding, but it's intended to be. Because that is exactly what Johnny is in his story. He is a classic Greek tragedy. Uh, a figure of someone who was actually a decent person for all intents and purposes, who had a horrible upbringing, and who was dragged down by horrible people around him, most notably including Billy and Ashley, but Ray had a piece in that too. But the highest tier person he ever really interacts with is Ray. Ray who is a small-time nobody-nothing on the bottom rung of a small-time nobody-mafia that's only a second-generation mafia, by the way, founded by Jimmy's father. <laughs> and they themselves are so pathetic that they're bending over, literally bribing and giving tribute to the Ancelotti's, and they're being laughed at for it. That guy way down there is above Johnny. That's how low-tier you are in Lost in the Damned. And that makes sense. There's no, there's no criticisms here. Luis then serves as a nice contrast to this. One of the earliest missions he gets is for Rocco, who, despite being a bumbling idiot, is still an actual uh, mafia member of the Ancelotti's, a.k.a. the actual five families. He's at the bottom, but still. And we end up working with Yusuf and, you know, doing actual terrorist acts and all sorts of things. The scale is substantially higher, although also a bit wackier. Uh, this is another reason the Saints Row comparison comes up, because 
for two big reasons, they decided to go a little bit more wacky with Ballad. One is there was a lot of uh, uh, pushback from GTA 4 and Lost in the Damned, and the viewers were... The audience was a little bit split, you know. The second reason, though, is because Saints Row was going more wacky, they wanted to keep the competition up. This is actually very apparent. I want you to do me a favor and either replay or think of Ballad of Gay Tony and remove some of the wacky elements from it, because what you're going to have left is an extremely dark, depressing story about the recession. Because that's what it is. Ballad of Gay Tony is a very dark, depressing story about the recession. It is just as dark and bleak as the other two. It's just they then went in after the main core story had been written and added lighter tone. It's really easy to see, in, in, even on an individual mission structure, how much more bleak and horrifying Ballad of Gay Tony could have been and wasn't. Anyways, point being, it's still the same perspective. That realistic, grounded idea diced up with some wacky showing the high end of how people who were on the, the higher end of things also were affected by the recession and also fall. Tony himself being the most obvious and apparent example of someone who was just tumbling through and then just throughout the course of the game. He is such a mess. The scene where he tries to commit suicide like twice on screen. <laughs> yeah. But that leads me to my final thoughts overall here, because one of the things I really like about these games tremendously is that they force a hard look at exactly what people's uh, priority lists are. I already mentioned Nikos, right? Family, getting revenge, he thinks, and existing, and that's it. But if you sit back and actually look at all the characters in these games, and the characters where these, this, these games really shine... You can see that all of them have their own priority list, and that says a lot about them. What they care about more than other things is interesting. Dimitri obviously cares about the immediate gain of money, and nothing about the long-term benefits of politics, connection, loyalty, or friendship. Just to name one example right off the top of my head. Luis obviously doesn't care about money that much, because he's already had it. He has money. He's doing fine, relatively speaking. And he does substantially care about his loyalty. The way he deals with Armando and uh, Enriquez is a great example of that. You know, Johnny and the fact that he adheres so strongly to the ideas of brotherhood and that his, his big ideology being his most important thing then made him fall the hardest when it, was when it was broken over his back and he became hobbled after that point and so forth and so on. I'm not going to go down the list of every single character, although... I do want to bring up one last comparison, and I know this is a weird one to end on. Bulgarin, or Bulgarin, they say it both ways in the game, and Yusuf. Now, both of these men are rich. Now, I want to clarify this for a second. <laughs> we see people who are well-off in these games, but they're not rich. They are a particular cycle of person who, despite the fact that they have a nice place and a nice car and plenty of good food and good clothing. They're not actually well off. In fact, they're drowning in debt. Right? The American dream, right? <laughs> um, but no, Yusuf and Bulgarin, they are wealthy. They are legitimately well off and have tons of money at their back. And yet both's priority is substantially different. Yusuf cares about uh, being decent to the people who work with him and under him. Even in the vanilla that was there, by the way. Playboy X has this whole thing where he's like, man, I'm going to go and I'm going to take care of this mafia thing, and then Yusuf will work with me and it'll be great. And Yusuf shuts down construction to put up a memorial for those who died. Yusuf also cares about that which he cannot procure with money. 
Now you might be thinking, oh, typical rich person, and you're you're right to do so. I'm not trying to point, paint Yusuf up as a great person, although I do like him as a character. But what I mean by that is he has the ability to think of things beyond money. Now that's important, especially in contrast to Bulgarin, who does not. One of the first things Bulgarin says in Ballad of Gay Tony, which is his the, his real time, he only has two cutscenes in Vanilla. Excuse me, three three cutscenes in Vanilla, and that's it. <laughs> He's the main villain of Ballad of Gay Tony, not the Vanilla game. But I'm getting off topic. He had one of the first things he see we see him in in Ballad of Gay Tony is everyone has a price. He asks he's, he's like who are those women, and he, they point him out and they say who he is. And he's all right. How much? That says so much about his mentality right there that he thinks he could just walk up to women who are not prostitutes. They're just women and dump money on them and say have sex with me, because to Bulgarin, there's nothing past money. Everything is money. Money is the end all. And everything that he does and everything he involved in is centered around money. Even to the point where he ends up getting screwed over because he gets caught up in the diamond thing too, which he probably shouldn't have been since that is only $2 million and that's nothing to him. But it is money. And that's the part that matters. You took my money. It is an interesting thing to think about, especially given the monumental amount of... Well, I don't want to get too preachy here, but let's just say two gay games is not exactly a... Uh, upstanding gaming industry, corporate, whatever. <clears throat> but it's nice to think about it in the course of the game. I hope you've enjoyed my thoughts here. I've done my best to summarize them and, and talk about them. And I hope you're still en enjoying this uh, experiment that we're proceeding with. I will see you guys next time.